True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The car pulls into the driveway and the man kisses the two teens goodbye. They haven't even made it to the front door of the house when the shots ring out. Cowering in fear, they watch as their father's body crumples and shadowy figures scatter into the night. In that moment, the lives of those two teenagers and many other people are changed forever. A legend is gone, and for many, the world will never be the same again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 94, The Murder of Lucky Dube. I have some special bonus content for you with this episode, courtesy of CBS Justice. I recently had a wonderful opportunity to interview Dr. Richard Shepard, one of the world's leading forensic pathologists, who has performed more than 23,000 autopsies. Dr. Shepard worked on some really high-profile cases, including the Hungerford Massacre, the death of Princess Diana, and the inquiry into serial killer Harold Shipman. He is also an author and the host of the brand new CBS Justice original series, The Truth About My Murder. So be sure to keep listening at the end of this week's episode to hear a fascinating discussion with Dr. Shepard about the developments of forensic pathology, how pathologists can help spot a serial killer, and how forensic pathology in the UK compares to other countries. And of course, Don't miss the premiere of The Truth About My Murder on CBS Justice, DSTV Channel 170, from Sunday, the 2nd of October at 8pm. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Christelle Buerta, Heidi O'Brien, Yuna van der Merwe, Shandri van Zwiel, Joanne Hircher, Victoria Oaks, Marika Oksa, Taryn Nell and Taryn Langenhoven for your support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskirali for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Last week, I said that my first true crime book, Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story, was going to be in stores on the 10th of October. Well, that is no longer correct, and it is already in some stores. The book is being published by Melinda Ferguson Books, an imprint of NB Publishers. It will be available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. There are three book launches planned so far. The first is on the 12th of October at Exclusive Books Rosebank. The second is on the 13th of October at Exclusive Books Clearwater Mall. And the third is on the 18th of October at Exclusive Books in Cavendish Square. I'd love to see you at one of those launches and sign your copy of the book. This book is pretty much a dream come true for me, and something I've wanted since I was six years old. And this podcast, and your support of it, has played a huge role in that. So thank you, and I can't wait to share this with you. Now, on with today's episode. 
The victim in today's case certainly was not one of what I would often refer to as invisible victims. Those people who don't get media coverage when they're murdered because they don't fit the media profile of what will get clicks and reads. But he was a victim, nonetheless, of the senseless and ever-growing wave of crime in South Africa, and his death brought international attention to the issue. Lucky Dube's celebrity is not why I wanted to cover this case, though. Rather, I wanted to cover it because I think one of the most important things that was forgotten when he was murdered was his humanity. The focus was so strongly placed on Dube's role as a musician that his perhaps more important roles as a father, husband, partner, brother and a friend seemed lost in the chaos. Another reason that I think today's episode is important to discuss is that it is what might be considered a very ordinary crime for South Africa, a hijacking. And yet, as I researched the investigation, I realized that even in this seemingly clear-cut crime, there were really fascinating uses of forensics and forensic pathology that helped put these killers behind bars. My sources for today's episode include an episode of Autopsy about this case, as well as several media articles about the trial. So let's get into episode 94, The Murder of Lucky Dubé. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Lucky Philip Dubé was born on the 3rd of August 1964 in Ermelo, Mpumalanga. His parents had split up before he was born, but he was so wanted by his mother, who'd experienced a number of miscarriages before his birth, that she named him Lucky to celebrate her good fortune at having carried him safely to term. He would be raised in a single-parent household along with his siblings, Tandi and Mandla, and one of his later songs, Remember Me, seemed to be dedicated to the father he had never really known. The song speaks of a father who heads off to work in another province, leaving his family behind, which is such a common occurrence in South African families, with employment being so scarce. In the song, Dubé speaks of a young man searching for his long-lost father and finding him in Soweto, but discovering that the man had started another family and there was no space in his life for his son. Of course, we don't know how biographically correct this song is, but Lucky would live with his grandmother for most of his childhood, as so many South African children do, as his mother had to relocate to find work to support her three children. Lucky would later describe his grandmother as his greatest love, who, quote, multiplied many things to bring up this responsible individual that I am today, end quote. In Lucky's early years, he says he saw no point in school. He wanted to contribute financially to his household, so he would regularly take long stretches off from school and worked as a gardener. Soon, though, he realized that he was not going to get very far in life on a gardener's wage, 
so he started focusing back on his schoolwork. It would be this decision to return to school that would pave the way for the rest of Lucky's life, as he joined a choir and discovered his musical talents. He and a few school friends started his first musical group called the Skyway Band. It was also this return to school that sparked another interest for Lucky that would influence not just his way of life, but also his style of music, when he discovered the Rastafari movement. Rastafari, or or Rastafarianism, is a religion and accompanying social movement that developed in Jamaica during the 1930s. Its followers are often referred to as Rastas, and are usually known for two things, dreadlocked hair and marijuana consumption. But really, the movement goes far deeper than that. Rasta beliefs are based on a very specific interpretation of the Christian Bible, and they believe in one God who they refer to as Yah. As with any religion, there are offshoots and breakaway groups that focus on slightly different aspects of the religion in question, and some Rastas believe that the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie was the incarnation of Yah. Rastas do their best to live as naturally as possible, and this is where the dreadlocks come in. The use of cannabis is regarded as a sacrament in the original Rastafari religion, and the most devout followers only consume it as part of ceremonies or on special days, and often only in tea form and not by smoking. This is one of the aspects of the religion that has become misunderstood and skewed by those who practice different versions, and as a result, Rastafarianism has become almost synonymous with the smoking of cannabis. This was something that Lucky Dube rejected, and he consumed cannabis only in tea form on special religious occasions and didn't smoke it. Another part of the original Rasta religion that Lucky found difficult to adhere to was the strict patriarchal roles insisted upon, as well as the often homophobic values included in the religion. Lucky, having been raised by two strong women, had a deep respect for women, and although this aspect did not go against the Rasta religion in principle, he could not bring himself to adopt the idea that women should submit to men, as Rastafari suggests, should happen. He also could not align himself with the Rasta belief that homosexuality was wrong. As a result, Lucky would end up practicing his own brand of Rastafari, one perhaps that focused far more on loving and accepting everyone. Another thing that is often made synonymous with Rastafari culture is reggae music, and although the style of music did originate in Jamaica and would be adopted by many Rastafarians, it was actually not initially developed strictly as a Rasta music style. Original Rasta music was actually based off many old Christian hymns, combined with local Jamaican styles, and it was only really in 1968 that reggae exploded and was adopted by many Rastafarians. When Lucky Dube started his musical career, reggae wasn't really a huge influence for him yet. In fact, Lucky's first professional gig was with his cousin's band, the Love Brothers, playing Zulu pop music. He joined the band when he was 18 and still at school, 
and also worked as a security guard at car auctions on the weekends. The Love Brothers would eventually be signed on to Teal Record Company, which was later incorporated into Gallo Records, when Lucky was still writing his matric. The band recorded in Johannesburg when Lucky was on school holidays. Lucky would release five albums with this ensemble under the name Lucky Dube and the Super Soul, but by the fifth album, he was advised to start releasing under just his name, and he had also by then started to dabble in reggae, which was becoming increasingly popular. In 1984, Lucky decided to release a mini-album named Rusters Never Die, and although the album sold poorly compared to his previous records, it came to stand for more than just a musical performance, with one of its songs, War and Crime, which was an ode to the damage apartheid was doing to the people of South Africa, seeing the entire album banned in South Africa. If there's anything we've learned from history, it's that by banning something, you only seem to create more interest in it. And the album became hugely popular overseas for this reason. It would be Lucky's 1985 album, though, that would really explode his popularity, both locally and internationally, and he was soon the darling of the musical world. For the next decade, Lucky continued to produce hugely popular reggae albums and won local and international awards. Lucky also tried his hand at acting during this time and appeared in three movies. While his career was exploding, Lucky was also building a family of his own. He'd married his wife Zanele and by 2007 had seven children with her. Lucky was deeply revered, not just as a musician, but as a humanitarian and someone who was respected for always sticking by his principles. He was perhaps one of the few celebrities with very little gossip following him around. People simply seemed to respect him far too much, and he formed long-lasting friendships with many of the people he worked with over the years. In October 2007, Lucky's youngest child was just three months old. He was doing well for himself and his family, and enjoying getting to know his youngest child, while also dealing with the daily dad duties of fetching and carrying his teenagers and younger children where they needed to go. Despite doing well financially, Lucky was not a terribly flashy man, but he had recently invested in a Chrysler C200, which was his pride and joy. On the evening of the 18th of October 2007, Two of Lucky's children asked to be dropped off at their uncle's house in Rosettenville. The three piled into the Chrysler and set off. As Lucky and his two children were preparing to leave the house, kilometres away at a bridge crossing the highway, a meeting was taking place that would soon have dire consequences for all involved. Tabo Maropeng, Sifiso Matlanga, Ludwe Ngoa and Mbuti Mbabe had been associates for quite some time. Their business was less than official, though. The four men were hijackers. They spent their time scouring the streets of Johannesburg for unwitting drivers to hijack. The vehicles they were after changed all the time. They knew what was on the list at that time, 
cars that would sell easily, and when they met up before a night's hunt, the group would be informed of the car that they were looking for. Two nights before, it had been a VW Polo. They'd managed to secure one without much hassle, and the driver had been compliant. In fact, the men found that most people were when they were faced with the wrong end of a 9mm. But you never could tell. People behaved in odd ways when their lives were threatened, they'd found. It was very likely that their victims couldn't even explain their own actions at the time of the crime, and many would react in ways they never could have predicted. The four men, though, were ready for anything. Their eye was always on the prize, the vehicle that would earn them money. It needed to be in the best condition possible, and that was almost the entire point of hijacking vehicles rather than stealing parked cars. Vehicles with the original keys, no damage to windows, the ignition or gear or steering locks, brought in a far higher price. Hijacking, of course, also came with far greater risk. More and more South Africans were arming themselves as hijacking became more prevalent, and taking the car straight out of the victim's hands meant they could more quickly alert police. This was why they would often take their victims with them if they were compliant, put them in the boot of the car, and drop them off in a quiet place with no cell phone. Sometimes they had to take other measures. Such was the nature of the business. That night, the four men concluded that they would be looking for a Chrysler to hijack. The brand was topping the lists of many stolen car dealers at that time, and it would bring them a pretty paycheck if they could secure one. The men would spend an hour or so driving around Johannesburg without any success. Then they decided to try the Rosettenville area. As the four men in the blue VW polo pulled onto a suburban street in Rosettenville, Lucky Dubé was making his way to that same street with his son and daughter. Many would struggle to believe after the fact that this had truly been such a terrible coincidence, that these four men who happened to be looking for a Chrysler would drive into the same street as a man in that exact car at that very moment. But that was exactly what these men did for a living. They were patient and observant, and it had worked for them many times before. And when they saw the car pulling into the driveway, they thought their luck was in again. The men watched as the car came to a stop and two doors opened. Two young people got out, briefly turned to wave to the driver before walking toward the front door of the house. Lucky Dube was a father. He was not going to leave that driveway until his children were safely inside the house but the men in the car didn't know that, and they were concerned that they would miss their chance. So while the teenagers were making their way to the door, they struck. Ludwig Ngoa and Sifiso Mlanga got out of the polo and ran toward the Chrysler. Mlanga was armed with his 9mm handgun. The exact details of what happened in those moments would only be revealed later, but the two men left behind in the polo heard two gunshots. Tabo Maropeng got out and ran to the car. 
He didn't know at that moment if the gunshots had come from one of his colleagues or from the driver. Lucky's two children heard the shots too and began to scream and dive for cover. Lucky Dubé was severely injured, but what happened next, at least in my mind, was a father's last-ditch attempt to protect his children. Lucky managed to throw the vehicle into reverse and drive up the road. I have no doubt that he was trying to draw the hijackers away from the house to give his children time to get inside. He would only make it a few metres before smashing into a tree. The four men, realising the Chrysler was now of no use to them, piled back into the polo and fled the scene. Colonel Wiseman Sipunga was a team leader at Boyson's police station on the evening of the 18th of October when he was called to attend the scene of an attempted hijacking and murder in Rosettenville. He was given no further details, but he says that the minute he pulled up to the scene, he knew this was something high-profile. Members of the media had already started to gather, and he spotted several high-ranking police officials on the scene. In the episode of Autopsy, he says with a small smile that he was quite happy to chase his superiors off his scene, as he cordoned it off. Regardless of rank, he knew that the responsibility for this investigation now fell on his shoulders, and he wasn't going to have anyone contaminating his scene. Within a few minutes, and with a growing crowd on the edge of the cordoned off section of street, Sepunga was told the identity of the victim. 43-year-old music icon Lucky Dube had succumbed to his injuries in the driver's seat of his car. He was declared dead by paramedics on the scene. Sepunga says that although he now realized he was dealing with a case that was soon going to be splashed all over the media, he could not let that weigh on his mind. He set about carrying out his duties in the same way he would for any murder scene, regardless of the identity of the victim. Forensics officers arrived on the scene shortly afterwards, and Sipunga pointed out evidence he'd already identified. What looked like a 9mm bullet casing was recovered, and fingerprints were found on the top of the car, above the driver's door, and on the door itself. More evidence would be recovered from inside the vehicle once Dubé's body had been removed, and the vehicle had been transported to the evidence testing centre for proper processing. Forensics officers would then scour the scene themselves, searching for any other physical evidence. A sketch is made of the general layout of the scene, and as evidence is identified, it's allocated a position marker, which is then recorded on the sketch as well. The piece of evidence is also photographed in situ, and later the photographs will be marked up with the allocated evidence marker numbers to make identification and presentation in a trial easier. Eyewitness statements were also vital, and although the two teenagers were understandably distraught, they were able to say that there had been three men at their father's car and possibly a fourth inside the waiting vehicle. Unfortunately, because it was so dark, they had not seen the men's faces. 
As South Africa woke up on the 19th of October 2007, the devastating news of the murder of Lucky Dube was headline news. Dr. Hestel van Staden, a senior forensic pathologist, was driving to work when she heard the news bulletin on the radio. She says that most people probably don't get to hear what they're going to be doing at work that day on the radio as they drive to work, but she often does. And when she heard that the beloved musician had been murdered the night before, she knew she would be carrying out his autopsy that day. When she arrived at work, she had a similar experience to Sepungu the night before. She quickly realized that this autopsy was not going to be the lonely one- or two-person job she was used to. The office of the forensic pathology department was packed to the brim with high-ranking police officers and other officials. Just like Sapungu, though, Van Staden could not allow herself to be distracted by the pressure that was clearly being placed on her. Ordinarily, she would know very little about the person she was autopsying, except for a bit of detail an I.O. or paramedic has scribbled down on accompanying paperwork. She had to carry out her autopsy in the same way she would for anyone else, celebrity or not, and that was what she set about doing. The report from the autopsy notes that the victim was 1.74 meters tall, weighed 80 kilograms, and in a normal nutritional state. It noted that Lucky's hair was dreadlocked, as this would have been a differentiating characteristic, and also notes his clothing as being black jeans, a white and brown striped shirt, a pair of black shoes, and yellow socks. And again, these small details really stand out to me, because at some point, we may all end up being reduced to vital statistics on a report like this. When Lucky Dube got dressed that morning, pulling on perhaps his favorite comfy black jeans, a vibrant striped shirt, those yellow socks and black shoes, he had no idea that just over 24 hours later, those very clothes would be noted down by Dr. Hestalf and Staden and her team as being the final pieces of clothing he would ever wear. And that clothing would serve another purpose too. It would become a piece of evidence that helped tell the story of how he died. Dr. Finstaden had been informed that the victim had sustained bullet wounds, and a vital part of understanding the trajectory of a bullet outside and then inside the body is seeing where it entered through the clothing, if applicable. In this case, Finstaden found two holes in the back of Lucky's shirt. One measured 6 millimeters in diameter, and the other 15 millimeters. Each hole corresponded with an area of blood staining on the fabric. There was another single hole over the back of the right buttock of Lucky's jeans. Photographs are taken of the areas identified on the clothing for use in court. Upon removing the clothing, Dr. Van Staden was able to determine that the two wounds to Lucky's back were bullet entrance wounds, and the wound on his thigh was a single exit wound. This told her two things. Forensics needed to look for a bullet inside the vehicle, 
and Dr. Van Staden needed to look for a bullet inside Lucky's body, which had clearly not exited. Dr. Van Staden explains the difference between an entrance wound and an exit wound as it pertains to bullets. When a bullet enters the body, it has the most energy it will have at any point after leaving the gun, and therefore the entrance wound is much cleaner and round in appearance. There is also usually a ring around the wound of skin that's slightly damaged by the energy given off from the bullet. As the bullet moves through the body, it loses energy, and as a result, when it exits, the wound is not as round as the entry wound. It is more slit-like, and essentially more of a tear in the skin than a hole. There is also usually no ring of damaged skin around this exit wound, because the bullet doesn't have as much energy left. What I found quite interesting in reading pieces of the report available is that the position of the wounds is recorded in terms of two coordinates, if you will. The first is the body's midline, so essentially an imaginary line drawn down the middle of the body, and the second is how high the wound is in millimetres above the person's heel. This is then, of course, taken into account, especially with bullet wounds, to be able to determine the trajectory of the bullet and where the offender may have been standing when the bullet was fired. So the first wound to Lucky's back, for instance, was measured at being 190 millimetres to the left of his midline and 1,200 millimetres above the left heel. After recording the external injuries, Dr. Van Staden's next job was to figure out the trajectory that the bullets had taken inside Lucky's body. Van Staden notes that it is not always possible to tell which wound was sustained first or second, but it is quite vital information to know which wound caused what damage, as this could become important in court. It's also important because it will tell the investigating officer how long the person may have been conscious after receiving an injury, and crucially, how long they may have been alive for after sustaining that injury before their heart stopped beating completely. Determining the trajectory of a bullet inside the body is an extremely difficult task, and there is no one-size-fits-all formula to figuring this out because every single situation will be different. The thickness of clothing, for instance, can drastically alter the trajectory of a bullet, and that's just one factor that needs to be taken into account. In this case, Dr. Van Staden was able to determine that the bullet that had exited the body had done the most severe damage. She was also able to determine that this bullet had been fired at a downward and to the right angle. It had entered the abdominal cavity and perforated both the iliac artery and vein, and it had then ruptured the bladder before exiting out of the pelvis. This bullet wound would not have been survivable under most circumstances, because the perforation of the iliac artery and vein meant that blood immediately began to flood the abdomen, and Lucky would sadly have bled to death internally, relatively quickly. 
Dr. Van Staden recovered almost two liters of bloodstained fluid from the abdominal cavity, in addition to significant hemorrhaging outside of that cavity. The other bullets had only penetrated the soft tissue of the back and lodged there. That wound would have been entirely survivable on its own. With this evidence from the autopsy, combined with the evidence found inside the vehicle, which included fingerprints on the back of the driver's seat, bullet holes through the seat, and the recovered bullets that had exited Lucky's body, police were able to put together a picture of what had likely happened that night. The fingerprints on the top of the car and the outside of the driver's car door indicated that two different people had stood there. One had yanked open the driver's door, and another had placed his hand on top of the car at some point, perhaps leaning into the vehicle. A third set of fingerprints was found on the back of the driver's seat. The bullet holes having gone through the seat indicated that the shooter had gotten behind Lucky, likely to hold a gun to his head and threaten him. But when Lucky had not gotten out of the car quick enough, two shots had been fired through the back of the seat and into the man's body. Of course, Lucky had not given in there, and the men would likely have had to have made a quick decision when he started reversing the car. A photograph of Lucky's crashed car indeed shows the door behind the driver open, as well as the driver's door and the front passenger door. While the front passenger door may have been opened by paramedics, there would have been no reason for them to open the back door, so that must have been left open by Lucky's killers as they jumped out of the moving car. There were two key pieces of physical evidence that could help to identify Lucky's killers. The first was the fingerprints. These could be run through the database of known offenders and arrested individuals, and a match might be found there if the offenders had already come into contact with police at some point. The other piece of physical evidence that could be useful was the bullets fired from the offender's gun. The one recovered inside the car and the one recovered from inside Lucky's body, were compared to one another. The grooves and striations on the bullets, which is caused by the friction process as the bullet moves through the gun, are unique to the weapon that it's fired from. So if the striations match one another, then that would mean both bullets were fired from the same gun. When this was confirmed to be the case, it wasn't much of a break because police had already suspected that one individual sitting behind Lucky had fired both shots at him. The key would be if they could match those same grooves and striations with another case already on the system. Christo de Klerk of the SAPS's Forensic Ballistics Services explains that it can be helpful when two cases can be linked by means of a weapon, because then your chances of finding the perpetrator increase, as you can safely assume you're looking for the same offender in both cases, and evidence from one crime can be added to evidence on another crime, and hopefully there'll be enough overlap and missing pieces of the puzzle to lead to an offender. In this case, no other ballistic matches were found on the system but with the grooves and striations mapped out on the bullets, once they found a gun, 
they would be able to easily identify it as the murder weapon. The key to cracking this case would be fingerprints. In particular, the fingerprints on the top of the car, which came back to one Tabo Marupeng. Marupeng's record was run and two possible locations were identified as being places he'd lived. In a coordinated sting, police raided both residences at the same time. Tabu Marupeng was not present at either home, but police did detain Marupeng's wife, Mpo. After briefly chatting with the woman and finding the VW Polo on the property, which had been reported as stolen in a hijacking two days before Lucky's murder, police advised Mpo that it was in her best interests to cooperate with them and tell them where her husband was, because they had more than enough reason to arrest her too for being in possession of stolen property. It didn't take Mpo very long to make the decision, and she told police where they could find her husband and one of his friends. Later that night, Tabo Marupeng and Sifiso Mlanga were arrested in the back room of a property not far from Marupeng's townhouse. In the room, police found a 9mm handgun. Although neither Tabo nor Sufiso seemed very interested, at least at first, in cooperating with police, Tabo's wife was singing like a bird back at the police station. She told police that on the 18th of October, she and her husband had been in Santon at a timeshare meeting. She'd noticed that her husband's phone had been constantly ringing during the meeting. And at one point he'd taken a call and told the person on the other end he would meet them on a bridge near the city centre. After the meeting, Tabu had asked her to drop him off in town. She identified the three men that were waiting for her husband as Mlanga, Ngoa and Mabe. Mpo said that she dropped her husband off and then went home in their maroon bucky. The four men had left in the blue VW polo. Mpo told police that later that night, all four had returned to the townhouse and her husband had asked her for the keys to the bucky. She'd looked outside and noticed that the polo they'd been driving was damaged. Now, I was not able to get 100% clarification on this point, but it appears that as Lucky reversed his car out of the driveway that night, he'd clipped the polo which was parked behind him in the street. Mpo's husband had claimed that night that they'd been hit by a taxi at a petrol station, but it would later become apparent that this was not the case. Mpo said that the men had left again after that, with two of them driving in the Marupeng's bucky, and the other two in another unidentified red vehicle. The woman told police that the next night, the evening of the 19th, She'd returned home from work expecting her husband to be ready to go to the mall as they'd arranged earlier in the day, but instead she'd found him in front of the television, watching news coverage about the murder of Lucky Dube. She says that her husband had then confessed to her that it had been his group that was responsible. The men would consistently claim that they had no idea it was Lucky Dube in the car at the time of the hijacking and shooting, and although investigating officers said they didn't believe this and that they were sure the men must have recognised the popular singer, for me, 
Tabu's statement around this claim is really strange. He said that Sefiso Mlanga had not known it was Dube and had, quote, thought the man was a Nigerian, end quote. This statement would never be explained in any sufficient detail, but I can't help but wonder what this implies. Did the men think less of shooting someone because they didn't think the victim was South African? Would they have behaved differently if they'd known it was lucky behind the wheel? In my mind, the only reason these men may have backed off from hijacking and shooting someone famous would be because of the media attention it would get. And although their statement smacks of xenophobia, I actually don't think that they would have thought twice if they thought the victim was South African. Chillingly, Tabo told his wife that after they had dropped off the polo at the townhouse that night, they had gone back to the scene of the crime. As Detective Shapingu was herding top brass cops and, and members of the media off his crime scene, the men who were responsible for the murder were pulling up nearby and joining the crowd. This, of course, is not unheard of, and it's actually quite common for murderers to return to the scenes of their crimes. Tabo explained that they wanted to see what was happening, and they became concerned when they saw all the media and realized that they were in deep trouble. Two days after Lucky's murder, Mpo told police that the four men had taken the polo to a panel beater. They needed to fix the damage to the car, firstly as it was likely an identifying factor, and secondly because they wanted to get rid of it as soon as possible. She gave police the name of the panel beater. It turned out that a trip to the panel beater was not all the men had done two days after Lucky's murder. When police raided the Murraping property, they found four vehicles. One of the vehicles was a Mercedes-Benz that had been hijacked on the night of the 20th of October. Tsipiwem Glaba had been driving his Mercedes-Benz on the evening of the 20th of October when he pulled into his driveway and was hijacked by the four men. Despite having murdered a man just two nights before, the four had absolutely no qualms about doing it again if they had to. Mlaba told police that he'd feared for his life as a gun was held to his head. He complied and got out of the vehicle, and the men had driven off. With all of this information in hand, the remaining three suspects were arrested. Mpo Marapeng was also arrested for being in possession of two stolen vehicles. In the days after Lucky Dube's murder, the horrifying news made international headlines. Lucky had built up a following in many countries across the world, especially in Australia, where people of Aboriginal origin there seemed to really enjoy the music he put out, as it was very similar to their own traditional music. Sickeningly, as the crowd had gathered that night, someone had snapped pictures of Lucky's body inside the car. Those pictures were circulated in the hours and days after his death, to the horror of his family. The arrests came as a relief to the public, but as is probably to be expected in a high-profile case of this nature, it didn't stop the rumours. The public seemingly found it very difficult to accept 
that their hero could have been the victim of such a random and sadly common crime. Although Lucky had never been known for any feuds or involvement in anything nefarious, rumours started to circulate that the murder had been a targeted hit. Police were eager to nip these rumours in the bud, as, through their investigation, it had become clear to them that the murder really was just a completely random event. Lucky had very simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. The gun seized from Safiso Mlanga was test-fired, and the bullet was compared to the two bullets from the crime scene. It was a perfect match. Police had their murder weapon. When they compared Mlanga's fingerprints to those found behind the driver's seat, those two matched, and police were sure they'd identified their shooter too. The fingerprints on the driver's car door were identified as belonging to Julius Ngoa. Although Tabo Marupeng initially resisted cooperating with police, both he and his wife soon chose to make deals with the state. Both would be given immunity from prosecution if they testified against the other three accused. In Tabo's statement, he confirmed what his wife had told police. He said that his fingerprints had been left on the roof of the car after he heard the shots and had gone to see what was happening. He'd leaned into the vehicle, leaving his mark behind. The three men were all charged with murder, two counts of aggravated robbery for the hijacking of the Polo and the Mercedes, one count of attempted aggravated robbery for Lucky's case, and two counts of the illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition. Lucky Dube was laid to rest in a private ceremony for his family and friends. Although the ceremony itself was close to the public, large screens broadcast it in a nearby field, and thousands of fans gathered to bid farewell to the icon. Scenes from inside the memorial spoke to who Lucky was as a person. His seven children and wife clung to one another in grief. Friends and colleagues wept and held each other as speaker after speaker shared their memories of the man. The trial of the three accused would begin in late 2008 and continue on into early 2009. Eyewitnesses, including Lucky's two traumatised children who'd been present that night, testified and the two men who'd been hijacked of their Polo and Mercedes respectively spoke about what they had experienced. It became very clear that the three accused were violent men with absolutely no regard for life. Both of the hijacking victims broke down when they said they realised how close they'd come to being killed too. One wrong move would have set these men off. That much was very clear. Dr. Hestalfen Starden testified to her findings in the autopsy. She said she was surprised by how quick the cross-examination by the defence was. The evidence mounted, and all three accused seemed headed one way. At least two of the men, though, weren't prepared to face up to their crimes, and in March 2009, the unthinkable almost happened. On the morning of one of their appearances, a truck transporting 16 prisoners, 
including Safiso Mlanga and Mbuti Mabe, arrived at the High Court building at 7.30am. All of the prisoners were set to attend their respective court cases that day and would be held in the holding cells until called for their appearances. The truck pulled into the courtyard and down into the basement of the court building. It pulled alongside the holding cell area and the roller gate to the basement was closed. Nine policemen surrounded the truck to make the transfer. Procedure dictates that the prisoners would exit the truck two by two and have their hands cuffed and their feet chained. First two pairs exited the truck without issue and were cuffed and chained and transferred to a cell. When the third pair exited, though, Blanga and Mabe, they both kicked at the door of the truck, which sent it swinging into a police officer, knocking him over. Mlanga then attacked another police officer with a brick, striking him in the face several times. A scuffle ensued as the men attempted to get a gun off another officer, but one of the officers responded immediately, firing two warning shots into the air and demanding that all the prisoners lie on the ground. The men complied, their attempt foiled. It became clear that they had intended to take on all nine officers and hold at least two hostage in order to force them to open the roller door so they could escape. Mlanga and Mabe were both injured in the escape attempt and transported to hospital under heavy armed guard. The escape attempt would slightly delay proceedings and security was beefed up around the trial, but in April 2009, all three men would be found guilty of the murder of Lucky Dube as well as all other charges against them. Later that month, life sentences were handed down to all three as Lucky's family in attendance in court breathed a sigh of relief. This month will mark the 15th anniversary of Lucky Dube's murder. His youngest child, who was just three months old at the time of his murder, will be a teenager now. Sadly, with their only memories of their father being the ones they've been given by their family. Lucky's music remains popular, and his name remains iconic, and associated with the man who stood up for what was right and voiced his outrage at an unfair world through his music. I hadn't really taken much note of the lyrics of Dubé's songs until I researched this episode, but I strongly recommend that you go and listen to some of his songs after this episode and really listen to the lyrics. The man was a powerful songwriter. He'd grown up in a time where he'd witnessed the very best and the very worst that his country of birth had to offer. Sadly, his last experience on this earth would be mired in the absolute worst that South Africa had, a senseless death for a pointless motive. I'm going to end this portion of the episode with some of the lyrics from Lucky's song, Truth in the World. I think the words are really relevant to what was represented in his death. The scourge of violent crime does not care who you are, and if you are unlucky enough 
to come face to face with four men, like those who took Lucky Dubé's life. You might see the truth of the world reflected in their eyes. I've been risking my life all these years, protecting you from all the wrongs you did. I keep all of this because of your promises. You promise me that you will die when I die. Promise that when trouble comes my way, you're going to be there. But when trouble came knocking at my door, you were not there to be found. When trouble comes and knocks on my door, you were nowhere to be found. The world is turning around. Yesterday becomes tomorrow. When lies are said to be the truth, and truth said to be lies. Like a preacher in church who preaches until tears run down his face. But when the sun goes down, he's a hooligan. When the sun goes down, he is a witch. Lucky Dube, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 94, The Murder of Lucky Dubé. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Richard Shepard, one of the world's leading forensic pathologists who's performed more than 23,000 autopsies. Dr. Shepard worked on some very high-profile cases, including the Hungerford Massacre, the death of Princess Diana, and the inquiry into the serial killer Harold Shipman. He's also an author and the host of the brand new CBS Justice original series, The Truth About My Murder. With this case, having shown the power of the forensic pathologist in revealing the truth about Lucky's murder, I thought it apt to have my interview with Dr. Shepard placed here. So here's my chat with Dr. Richard Shepard. Dr. Shepard is uniquely placed, considering his long tenure as a forensic pathologist, was to have seen the developments of the science. He mentioned in one interview I listened to that when he started working as a pathologist, the rules on scenes were simply put your hands in your pockets and don't leave fingerprints. And today that is very different. I asked Dr. Shepard what his experience had been of how the science of forensic medicine has changed from when he first started practicing until he retired. Yeah, I mean, there's two things here. There's the forensic pathology, which in a sense, the body hasn't changed. So how we examine it really hasn't changed much until the last few years. But I'll come to that. Forensic science has changed beyond all recognition. And so the examination of the scene and the body looking for what we call trace evidence. These are in hairs and blood spots and fibers you know, soil samples, pollen, all of these things have become so important in the investigation of a serious offence, whether it's a murder or anything else. And as a result, the people that go to look at the body, go to the scene, have to protect the scene from themselves. They're not protecting themselves from the scene. This is why they wear, wear the white suits, they have gloves on, they have masks. And all of these things, when I first started out, were just not important because... Forensic science, uh, they could detect fingerprints uh, and it would cost me a bottle of whiskey if 
anyone ever found one of my fingerprints at the scene. So I was determined that didn't happen. But that was that was the real concern. Uh, we were more concerned about protecting ourselves against blood and infections from the scene. Now it's turned around. But forensic science is so powerful now. Um, we have to be very careful. Forensic medicine, as I say, didn't hasn't changed a lot until now the development of CT scans and MRI scans, which have really allowed us to investigate the body before we even start the post-mortem. And that's been a huge step forward. I thought it was quite important that Dr. Shepard had pointed out the distinction between forensic science and forensic medicine, because they really are two very different things. Yes. I mean, they, they, they run parallel, but you know, we, we've been through a phase where forensic science has developed and changed so much. Uh, but as I say, the, the human body stayed pretty static. So, you know, we, we have a good system for examining it. Why, why change it if it's not broke? Dr. Shepard mentioned scans that are now used in autopsies. And when you watch the series The Truth About My Murder, you'll see Dr. Shepard uses digital autopsy tools to show viewers how pathologists would have helped solve the cases being discussed. There are a few facilities in the UK that have this technology, but in my research I also noted that there was a bit of pushback against it. I asked Dr. Shepard what his experience has been of the technology and if he thinks it will one day completely take over from physical autopsies. No, I, I, I think it is using CT scans is something that's happened in particular in Melbourne, in Australia, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for decades now. And it's a really useful tool, but it has to be used in the correct way. It's used uh, there and now increasingly in the UK and America and other places too, to try and understand why someone has died from natural causes. So we're not talking about accidents. We're not talking about murders. We're talking about being able to make a decision to say we do not need to do an autopsy on this body because we have the results. Let me take a simple example. The aorta, the main blood vessel of the body, as you get older, it can get weakened. It can develop an aneurysm which can burst and that can cause a sudden death. And that can easily be seen on a CT scan. And so we can save the family distress. We can save work for the mortuary staff if we can see that. And it allows a diversion of that body away from having a full autopsy. So it can be really useful for that. Um, but some forensic pathologists, some pathologists don't like it because they think the radiologists are muscling in on their field, which clearly isn't true. But in terms of accidents, in terms of murders, in terms of trauma, it is a fantastically powerful technique to be able to monitor, to document, to get data, even before we start the postmortem. So it can give us the guide, the help. And on that area, the forensic area, the suspicious death, the murder, it is so powerful and so helpful. I asked Dr. Shepard whether, to his knowledge, there'd been any issue with courts accepting digital autopsy evidence in criminal cases. And none that I'm aware of. Uh, I think because it is a well-established in clinical medicine, it is so well-established how the data is 
saved, how it's recorded, how it's transferred is well. So I'm sure there will come a challenge, if you see what I mean, because that's what happens when there's the interface between medicine and the law. There will come a challenge, I'm sure. But at the moment, it's been proven to be so useful. Um, and when we had uh, in England, there was a case uh, a while ago of a man who was found injured by the side of the road. And it was thought that a truck had gone past and hit his hit his head with the, you know, the wing mirror of the thing no one took a lot of notice he went into the hospital he had a surgical operation that removed the damaged bit of skull and then he died and then it became clear that actually it wasn't a truck he'd been hit with a hammer but by that time the bit of skull had been thrown away but from the ct scan they were able to recover that data and using 3d printing they were able to make the bit of skull and use that bit of evidence in court to convict someone. So, you know, it has a power far beyond anything that we can perhaps even think of now. How amazing is that story? In other interviews I listened to with Dr. Shepard, he'd spoken about the autopsies he'd done, which ended up being the victims of serial murderers. Forensic pathologists are often uniquely placed to see the similarities in cases and identify those. I asked Dr. Shepard if he could explain how he may have experienced the similarities and progression in these post-mortems of the victims of serial murderers. I mean, I've not been involved directly in many, but the one I have been involved in is the case of a a lady called Rachel Nickell, who was murdered on in a a common a, a park area in South London when she was out walking with her young young son i think he was less than two years old she was stabbed multiple times but it was only later on that i i was examining uh, the body of someone else and i said you know this is so similar it's a young le- young woman with a child only this time in a house with a child who both of them had been murdered and i said you know this is so similar there needs to be a link because the murder of rachel was so unusual you know i'm i'm <laughs> No murder is routine, but there are patterns that you see time and time again. And remember, you're you're much more likely to be murdered by a member of your family or a relative than than anyone else in the world. So, you know, look at that carefully when you go home tonight. But it it is, you know, this is just so unusual. A young woman stabbed to death on a in a parkland area. And it's these unusual cases. So the linking in. But of course, serial killers change. Serial killers alter what they do. They discover that they got enjoyment out of that bit of the murder, but they didn't get enjoyment out of the other bit of the murder. And so it it, it changes. Uh, and mm. spotting that can sometimes be easy, can sometimes be hard. I was very interested to discover that Dr. Shepard was involved in the inquiry conducted into the serial murders committed by another more infamous doctor, Dr. Harold Shipman. Shipman, of course, is believed to have been the most prolific serial killer of all time. He was a medical doctor who murdered an estimated 250 of his most elderly patients, in many cases defrauding the victims by changing their wills or stealing from them in some other way before injecting them with deadly substances. I asked Dr. Shepard whether he could tell us about his involvement in that case. I mean, in in English law, 
there's the prosecution and the defence. And the defence will almost always employ a pathologist to advise them. And that was my role with Harold Shipman. I acted as not as the prosecution pathologist, but as the defence pathologist. So I got to see many of the postmortems and I got to understand a lot of what was going on. The consultant work is a lot of what's been keeping Dr. Shepard busy since he officially retired from work as a forensic pathologist. There's a finite line, I think, when you stop working on a, a very regular basis, you know, a day by day basis. I think I'm conscious that I have to be aware of skill fade if I'm not doing it all the time. And now it's it is a number of years since I stopped doing full time work. And so I'm doing less and less advice, working for the defence, advising coroners, advising governments and things like that. But it is it is less because I've got I have so much more interesting things to do, like flying my planes and keeping my bees, which is much more fun. And (laughs) less nobody shouts at me when I'm doing them. (laughs) Dr. Shepard has worked on many high profile cases, but in another interview I listened to, he said that the most interesting cases he's worked on are actually not the most high-profile ones. I asked him which cases do stand out to him as the most interesting of his career. The high-profile ones are always interesting because yeah. there's 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 lots going on. But often pathologically, they're not they are not the most difficult. Um, you know, when you, when you have a, a pop star or an actress or an actor dead in a hotel, that's pretty sure it's going to be drugs and alcohol. You know, the story of why they did it is much more sad and interesting than how they did it. Um, it it's difficult to pinpoint one case i mean i talk in in my first book unnatural causes about the case of a girl called alana who died from epilepsy uh died suddenly and for her parents point of view anyway surprisingly overnight from epilepsy and i think those cases are interesting because the diagnosis was a bit difficult it was a bit unusual but also talking to her parents i was able to explain to them what had happened and how it had happened And I hope give them an understanding that would enable them to begin a really difficult journey of coming to terms with the loss of their young daughter. And so they say that the the fascinating cases are often these quiet ones where I've sat in a room with a wife or a son or a a mum and a dad. And we've talked about what's gone on. I've learned about what they thought about their relative, you know, and, and we've but I hope I've given them with compassion, that ability to begin to move on. I can't take them through grieving, but I can at least help them to start the grieving with certain knowledge. And it's always true in medicine that the fantasies people have are 99.9% worse than the reality of what actually happened. And so rooting them, grounding them in the reality can be quite hard, but it's a far better place to start that process of grieving. I said to Dr. Shepard, as I have to the other forensic pathologists I've interviewed, that I think that this is almost one of the most important parts of their work. It's being able to gift that truth to a grieving family, because without it, their grief may be complicated and far more difficult to work through. I've always said that, I mean, truth becomes philosophically a slightly fuzzy subject when you go to court what is the truth in court remember you know with an adversarial system you have two 
truths and you have to sort of, well, I don't have to decide. I just have to work between the two. But it is, you know, being honest and decent to the best of your ability is the closest that you can get, I think, to the truth. Having interviewed two South African forensic pathologists on the podcast, Dr. Hestel van Staden and Dr. Ryan Blumenthal, and now speaking to Dr. Shepard with a different geographical perspective, I wanted to get a feel for how the UK environment is different from South Africa. In the UK, for instance, would a pathologist visit the scene of each unnatural death? And how common is it for detectives in suspected murder cases to attend an autopsy? No, a pathologist wouldn't necessarily attend all unnatural deaths. The the police will, and the level of their skills is a bit variable. Sometimes, of course, they're young police officers. Sometimes they're rather older sergeants or inspectors. And so the interpretation and understanding can be different. Um, a pathologist will often, but once again, not always, go to the scene of a suspected murder. Uh, you know, sometimes the paramedics have arrived, the body is gone. There's not a lot necessarily to see at that time. I mean, my view was the pathologist should always go to the scene, but you don't necessarily have to go before you do the postmortem. You can often go after the postmortem when you can move around more easily. You don't have to wear so much protective gear. You can see relationships and things of that sort. In terms of uh, police officers attending potential murders post-mortems, yes, there's a very definite attendance as a group of people will have a photographer, will have a crime scene investigator, will probably have an exhibits officer, will probably have the senior investigating officer and maybe other people as well. So there's quite a group, a core group of people who will attend the post-mortem to see that. And that is, of course, something we know we struggle with in South Africa and it's been pointed out as being a major problem. I said to Dr. Shepard that it seems really important for a detective to be there to have that feedback loop of information going. And it's it's sort of constant going on. You know, the detective will will be talking on his phone and he'll say, we've heard this. Or I'll say, well, I found some injuries. I think really think when you're at the scene or near the scene, you should be telling your officers to look for a hammer or a knife. Or, you know. So there's this exchange of information the whole time, which can be really, really useful in moving the process on. Interestingly, I did ask Dr. Shepard whether he thought that sufficient resources would be available to cover all cases if a pathologist did need to attend all unnatural deaths in the United Kingdom. And he said, absolutely not. There would simply be far too many for their resources to support something like that. We, we need a sort of a stepladder approach here. You know, the, the junior police officer will go to the scene and then they, will, w- w- they won't be happy, so they'll call their sergeant, he'll call his inspector, and then it will work its way up. Unless, of, of course, there's obvious sounds of gunfire and there's someone dead on the street with bullet holes in them, then it's, you know, it's sort of obvious. But if a body is found in a house, it can take a while. And it often depends on the skill and experience of the people that go there. Uh, and certainly I've had cases where someone said, oh, it's, there's nothing that's worrying. And when I start the post-mortem, it's clear that there obviously is. Uh, and you know, maybe had I or someone more experienced gone to the scene, we would have seen that at the time. But that's training, that's skills and experience. Uh, and you can't criticise someone for not having had 40 years experience. In one of the episodes of The Truth About My Murder that I watched, 
which was about the murder of Peter Farker. Dr. Shepard mentions that in an autopsy, something may be identified as a cause of death, but it may not be the cause of death. So I asked him to explain the difference between those two concepts. Whenever you do a, a, a post-mortem examination, there are an, a number of things may be obvious. Peter Farker, I think, you know, was he was found lying next to a bottle of whiskey and, you know, he smelt of whiskey and he was said by his partner to be an alcoholic and he'd found him like this. And so, that, you know, there's lots of arrows pointing in one direction. Um, and as a result, you can get easily get led away down that track. In fact, that's probably not what happened to him. He was poisoned with other drugs that he'd been given. But if you're not thinking broadly, you have to be wary of being trapped. And it's all too easy uh, to go down the e- go down the easy road. I mean, I have I'm also doing a tour around the United Kingdom again, second time this year, and part of that tour is talking about how you look at the crime scene and the words I use are think dirty. You have to think dirty. So even if it looks nice, the house is nice and tidy, everything's neat and straight. Uh, you know, is that what it should be like? Or has someone tied it up? You know, the body's in the bed. Have they have the body been moved? Has it been changed? Has it been altered? Have things been uh, hidden away? All of these things have to go through your mind, but they can only go through your mind once you have the skills and the experience to be able to step back uh, and think of them. So certainly it's true that, you know, if you seize upon the simple thing, you might miss something that's far more important. Dr. Shepard has worked on several mass murder incidents, including the Hungerford Massacre and the Bali bombings. I asked him how scenes like that with multiple fatalities are different, if at all, from cases of single fatalities, perhaps in the way he would approach them or the challenges involved. Well, they're they're all so different um you know hungerford was um a a number of people but they were separated they were interspersed and in a sense it was also known how it was likely that each person was going to have died so they were all different but they were in a similar similar group and they were sort of separate from each other Mm. Uh, and so in terms of examining the scenes it was possible to pick one at a time and move around and do the postmortems one at a time to get the individual bits of information. With something like a bomb blast or a uh, a plane crash or things of that sort, you get lots of mingling, you get lots of things happening altogether, you get fire, you get large amounts of force and energy used and fragmentation. And world trade is perhaps the, the best example or worst example of that. And so managing those scenes is very different. In in a bombing scene, if it's you know when we managed um, the London bombings, it, there were four separate ones, but multiple fatalities at each. And it's a question of it following it through in a careful progression, not rushing in once once there is certainty that there is no one alive at the scene that requires help. Then I I always say slightly jokingly right stop go away and have a cup of tea and plan okay we always have plans we have plans that are made out and you know in books that we can use for resilience but let's go away stop and think because every single case 
every single case is slightly different and you don't want to miss by rushing in and just going following the protocol bang 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 missing something that on this case is unusual and when in the london bombings what was unusual was there was a lot of blue plastic oh, that was it right. nothing terribly exciting people lots of people dead but the key thing was there was lots of blue plastic and it was present in each of the four scenes and that that was the forensic science clue pathologically it didn't mean a lot other than we identified it and were able to follow that through and that turned out to be obviously part of the wrapping and where the wrapping had come from and who had handled it and where their fingerprints on it all became crucial so managing mass disaster scenes is a real skill uh in a, and we can also look at maybe um yugoslavia we can look at what will come in ukraine uh you know in the future we can look at the tsunami how you manage these things it just takes skill and patience and my goodness me a lot of courage for the people that go in and do them as well and of course in scenes where there's significant dismemberments of bodies like the world trade center attacks there's also the requirement that pieces of bodies need to be identified by dna to actually sadly reassemble a human being from what's left world trade there were an, an, a number of quite well preserved bodies but the vast majority was so fragmented by the forces uh of the collapse of the buildings more than the the forces of the the planes hitting the buildings the forces of the collapse of the buildings were so massive that you know we were talking 30 40,000 fragments of human you know that that could some could some could not be positively identified by dna and and i think i read recently that there are still about give or take 1500 people who no part of them has ever been recovered from world trade so that's 1500 families where there is but there's not even a a, a fragment Mm. that can be positively identified and they are now at the point where they do have quite a lot of tissue samples left but these tissue samples are so contaminated so small that were they to analyze them there would be nothing left at the end of it and there's once again at this stage do you want to go through that i mean do do you want to say to someone well yes actually we've now found one tiny fragment of your your husband but it's no longer there so there's nothing we can do with it. it it's a real issue and a problem and this is this is where the compassion of forensic pathology has to come in and the care the care for the courts but the care for the families and the relatives that has to go through what we do into how we communicate dr shepherd's field of specialization is knife related incidents and i wondered whether that's because knife related incidents are so common in the uk or is it just a cause of death he finds particularly interesting from a medical point of view? Common, common things occur commonly. And so, you know, in the UK, after Hungerford, after Dunblane shooting with the IRA, with gu- the, the ownership and the use of guns is incredibly restricted. Mm. And so gun-related crime is very, very minor part of the forensic pathologist's work. Whereas knife wounds... You know, with a gun, you can stand 100, 200 yards away, a mile away. I mean, if you're an American forces sniper, it's a kilometer away or whatever. You, you know, you don't need to get close. But with a knife, you actually have to be up close. You have to be within touching distance of that person. And that alters the dynamics and the psychology of what's going on. 
Uh, and knives are ubiquitous. Knives are all through the community. Uh, and, you know, I've seen so many cases of minor fights that have ended in the death of someone, just a fragment of a second of anger, a knife in someone's hand, uh, and they're dead. And I slightly, slightly jokingly say that this is one of the design faults that I found with the human body, that most of us are right-handed, 85% or so right-handed, the heart is on the left-hand side 99.9% of the time. And so a right-handed person with a knife, if they stab someone in front of them, it's, wow. there's a significant chance it's going to go through the heart. And then it's just chance. You know, I've seen lots of people who've lived by a millimeter, and I've seen far, far, far too many people who've died because that millimeter has been the wrong side. It's cut a major blood vessel. It's cut into the heart. It's done something awful. And they've died. And you know, knife crime is is a real epidemic in in this country. And you know, we speak today uh, when there has been the first spree stabbing in the world that I'm aware of in Canada. On the day that I interviewed Dr. Shepherd, one of the world's first mass fatality stabbing incidents had just taken place in Canada. Of course. Mass murders with short-bladed weapons are incredibly rare because the possibility that the offender will be disarmed is high. In this case, it appears that there were two offenders, and sadly, many lost their lives in that incident. My final question for Dr. Shepard was about the international cases he's worked on. The Bali bombings, for instance, or the work he did on 9-11. I wondered how he found the experience of working in other countries. It was, well, I'd done some work in in, uh, Bermuda, which has got excellent facilities, a wonderful sort of hospital. I went out to Nigeria following the death of a man called Chief Abiola. I was sent out with the United Nations team. Uh, All of the local hospitals refused to let us perform an examination in their facilities for political possibly i don't know for whatever reasons mm-hmm. uh, and so we ended up performing the post-mortem in the operating theater of a small private hospital so you know you 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 work with what you have mm-hmm. uh you know it, it, it's not always ideal but if you wait if you wait for the ideal in situations like this it's it's never ever going to happen a huge thank you to cbs justice the home of true crime on television for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa, and to Dr. Shepard for a really enlightening conversation. And remember to watch The Truth About My Murder every Sunday at 8pm, starting on the 2nd of October. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 